This week, I'm joined by Dr. Albert Mej, who, as a teenager in France, sold magic shows. Whatever follows next has got to be good. He's the founder of Presands, a startup he sold to the strategy consulting firm, Arthur D. Little, in 2020, and of which he is now associate director. Dr. Mej holds a PhD in computational physics from the Australian National University and an MBA from HEC Paris Business School. He's got multiple patents, he's well-published, he is an author, and a perfect person to have a conversation about generative AI like ChatGPT and its potential to solve complex problems. It's like we've just discovered the smartphone all over again, but instead of little drips and drops, it's like it's almost fully realized, which then begs the question, what are the ethical considerations and safeguards we should have in place around the development and application of this tool? If the smartphone has raised significant challenges to our social fabric, generative AI without safeguards is a future I don't even want to consider. Fortunately, we have Albert to help bring perspective. So please, enjoy our conversation with Dr. Albert Mej. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. Albert, you recently wrote an article that cracked me up. I loved it, very provocative, but the headline was, your daughter replaced you with chat GPT to get her homework done. Absolutely hilarious. I, I, my, I have kids in college, um, just a little bit older than um, your twin daughters. And uh, I don't know if that's a great benefit or terrorizing, but could you explain a little bit about what you meant there and what the circumstances for that story were? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so indeed the article, I called the article, my kids have replaced me by ChatGPT or with ChatGPT. <laughs> and it's uh, it's actually a true story. And it was back in, I think, December or something like this. And I have twin daughters, Maya and Isoline. And I was helping Maya with her homework. Uh, she's in high school. And Isoline called me and she said, uh, Dad, can you help me with my homework? And I said, yes, give me a few minutes and I'm finishing with Maya and I'll we, then I will come over to you. <laughs> and then it took uh, much longer than what I thought. So 45 minutes later on, I went to Isoline and then she said uh, this very funny thing, too late, Dad, <laughs> ChatGPT already helped me. And um, well, I was a little bit surprised, but also a little bit worried uh, at the same time. But I looked at what she had done. Uh, it was a problem in optics, in physics, and she had managed to solve the whole problem. And then I looked at uh, what she had done with ChatGPT because I was wondering if um, uh, ChatGPT had solved the problem for her or if it was just a super assistant who had helped her. Right. And I looked at the conversation and um, first of all, she did not understand what was at stake, what, what she was supposed to do. So she copied uh, the, the text into a chat GPT and GPT explained what she was supposed to do. And then she had this very interactive process to find the solution and the solutions because it was a whole problem with several questions to find the solutions by herself. So um, I thought it was quite interesting. It, it's genius. It's terrifying and it's genius, isn't it? That, And it's... It, it, I presume she didn't have much experience with the um, with the tool, and so to be able to work through it um, natively without 
a lot of help. And in physics, she's not creating a rap song or, you know, some other fun thing that people do with these things. She's, she's getting it to clarify, um, you know, content that's already created. She brings it to this tool and says, help me to interpret this and then help me to interact with it so that I know what I'm doing. Okay, got it. And the tool clarifies it. There's so many mind-blowing things that are going on with that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it, it, it brings me to another article that I've just written and that will come out in, a, in just a few days. Um, I have wondered why uh, these tools, such as ChatGPT, but also others, have been released under the form of a chatbot. Because, you know, you have the technological bricks, the large language model, which is underlying the bot. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, some people decided that it could be made available through a chatbot. Mm. So I was wondering why, because um, the thing is, if you make it available through a chatbot, since everyone knows how to have a conversation, um, it's uh, pretty intuitive to use it. Uh, but there are some drawbacks, of course, because uh, because it the bot is going to reply to you, you tend to assume as a user that uh, the bot has uh, advanced cognitive uh, abilities, while in reality, it does not have these abilities. Right. And uh, it may lead to disappointment because you expect to get an answer, you expect to get a correct answer, and it's not always the case. So I was wondering why deciding to, uh, to create a chatbot. And then uh, I realized that uh, if you look at what happened last year, uh, many things happened in the field of uh, generative AI, uh, in um, images, uh, photos, uh, any kind of content, so text, uh, video, uh, voice, etc., etc. And despite the release of many of these tools, ChatGPT was really uh, the fastest in terms of adoption. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was uh, 1 million users in f- four days. Uh, and we have estimated with my team that it was probably 100 million, between 100 million and 300 million users uh, by the end of uh, January 2023. So it makes ChatGPT the fastest adoption ever. And I think that this anthropomorphization uh, of the tool, so the fact that it's uh, under the form of a chatbot rather than anything else, anything else, uh, really has to do with the pace at which the tool was adopted. And to go back to your question and to the anecdote uh, with my with my daughter, I think uh, she managed to use this tool because, as I said before, anyone knows how to uh, do a conversation. So it's very, very intuitive. Mm. You know, I didn't even think about this, but did she do it in... I, I, I'm embarrassed to say this. I'm imagining this conversation took place in English because I speak English, you're talking to us from um, somewhere near Paris, France. D- what is chat GPT in France in French or is it in English? No, it's, it's in French. I mean, it's in any language because it's been trained with a very large uh, corpus of data in uh, many languages. So the, the, the tool understand, it does not understand, right. but I mean, right. knows how to uh, work in any kind of uh, languages. Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, when Apple and Steve Jobs released the iPhone uh, 
what year was it? I don't remember the year exactly, but uh, like 15 years ago or something. Yeah, I want to say eight, 2008. 2009 somewhere yeah in there. it was around this uh, period yeah. but anyway i remember that he had this uh, behind uh, the screen behind him uh, steve jobs had this diagram with uh, uh on the vertical <clears throat> axis it was the uh, the smartness of the of the phone and on the horizontal axis it was the level of uh, is it hard to use or is it easy to use right and uh, i think uh, and he had put some you know uh, uh, classical smartphone that were not so smart uh, right. with many plastic buttons etc um, phones that were not smart at all because it was not smartphone it was a classical phones and on the top right corner there was the iPhone and I think it's a little bit the same we could we could do uh, uh, something very similar with um, generative AI because um, a few years ago, you know, we had the, the generative adversarial networks, GANs, to generate images. And these ones are pretty difficult to use because you need to know how to code to use them because you need to access it through an API. And it's also not so smart because you can, I mean, if you have trained your neural network with, you know, photos of cats, it will only be able to generate photos of cats. Right. Uh, then uh, if you take something a little bit smarter, like the uh, large language model GPT-3 or GPT-4 now mm -hmm. you can only access it through an API so it's difficult it's much smarter but difficult and then on the top right corner you have chat GPT it's both smart because it relies on GPT but it's also easy to use because it has this very intuitive conversation based uh, interface right um, yeah it's, I don't know if it makes sense but no uh, it makes sense in fact it's it's steering me towards a question I want to ask but as you're describing this, one, I remember when I first got introduced to you and I was I was listening to you and I was like, this guy's a mad scientist. And then I realized he's not really a mad scientist. You started off, according to your bio, as a magician, or at least selling magic products, went into telecom and then physics. And I was like, that is a perfect path for someone to get involved in an endeavor like this. For a lot of people, it feels like chat GPT or tools like it. Uh, either that are going to be released or kind of right under the surface of it. For one group, it's appeared as if it's magic. And for another group, like it's a plague of locusts sent by God. Like they're not sure. Is this the destruction of humanity and one of the, you know, one of the uh, terrifying things? Or is this a miraculous, miraculous gift given to us by um, the uh, universe what, if you don't mind taking just a minute, sort of what's the history of the things, or at least the big ideas that sort of led us to 2023 with these tools, with your daughter able to have this conversation and get to a, um, a, a productive outcome? Is it literally something that was just invented a few weeks ago, a few months ago, or has this been a logical conclusion of something in progress? And where are we on that trajectory? Is there more coming? Is this the culmination of the endeavor? Yeah. So there are several questions into your question, but maybe uh, yeah. uh, let me react to the analogy that you made with with, uh, with magic, because there is, there is something I had not clicked before, but there is something very similar. Actually, when I was uh, so I, I, I indeed started my uh, uh, career as an entrepreneur uh, when I was uh, 15 or something, I, I turned my uh, hobby that was doing magic tricks into uh -huh. uh, selling magic shows. And I did that in parallel to my studies for, for 10 years or something. 
And very often when I was uh, interviewed by journalists or, and they were asking me this exact question, which is, but you are an engineer, you are a physicist, how come are you doing also magic? It doesn't right. seem to fit together. But actually, uh, when you do magic, it's not like black magic, real magic. Right. All right. relies on techniques, tricks, etc. So, uh, I mean, the engineering part is extremely important. But the thing with magic is that you make the technology or the trick disappear, and you just see the effect. Right. Uh, and it very much uh, relates to your point about ChatGPT because there is a very complex uh, technology underlying the user interface. But uh, at the user interface level, you only see the uh, the conversation aspect. So it's it's very similar to magic. And you know, there is this, uh, I, I like a lot science fiction, and there is this quote by uh, um, Arthur uh, C. Clarke, who uh, wrote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indis indistinguishable from uh, magic. And I think this is exactly what we see with ChatGPT. Yeah. The technology is extremely complex, but because there is this very simple user interface and very intuitive user interface, it's being adopted. And it's, uh, once again, it's the fastest adoption ever. Uh, so that was uh, to answer the first part of your yeah. comment slash uh, question. And mm -hmm. then the second part was, uh, where uh, does all that come from? Yeah, how'd we get here? It seemed like it just appeared, but it probably didn't. It's probably there's an engineering path of tools and ideas that have been developed over time. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the digital uh, history, it's already pretty old. And if we focus on uh, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence itself, it's at least 70 years back in the past. Uh, the first uh, mechanical uh, calculating machine was by uh, Blaise Pascal in uh, 1642, so it's even more than uh, <laughs> uh, 70 years back. But if we uh, go back to the first time the, uh, the term artificial intelligence was coined, that mm -hmm. was in 1956, if I recall properly. And even a little bit before that, there was the... Um, uh, famous Turing test that was invented mm -hmm. by uh, Alan Turing, and that mm -hmm. was in uh, 1950. So it, it, the roots of artificial intelligence are, are, are at least 70 years old. Mm. And then, of course, uh, there has been various approaches that have been tried out. Um, people got very excited uh, in the 50s and 60s, and then uh, because the results were not coming fast enough, People, there was a little bit of uh, uh, yeah, disappointment and uh, less money going into uh, the system, less in investments, less, less people working on it, whether it's in the academic world or the industrial world. And so in the mid-70s, there was the first uh, AI winter. Uh, then it started again uh, in the late 70s and uh, early 80s. And then again, in the mid-80s, there was a, a second AI winter <coughs> where literally, almost literally, no investments at all. And then for the last 10 years, uh, I would say that we are in a kind of a summer uh, AI because there is a lot of money which is poured into the system with many very talented people working on these tools uh, and and everywhere in the academic world, in startups, in large corporates. And now we are seeing the results. And maybe the, the, the last thing that I can say about the um, this uh, history is the main applications of AI until 
quite recently, I would say until the mid uh, 2010, um, where about trying to make sense out of a out of a very large amount of data. You know, it's everything related to clustering, um, segmentation, uh, price prediction, etc. So it's you have a, a very large amount of data, and uh, what insights can you thanks to AI, uh, get out of this data. Mm -hmm. And more recently, uh, we started to have algorithms to do almost the opposite, the opposite of classification. It's you give a tag, a classification, uh, a word, and then based on that, the AI is going to generate content. Mm -hmm. And that uh, started, I, I think, an important uh, milestone was in uh, in 2014 with the first paper on GAN, Generative Adversarial Networks, that described an algorithm that would allow an AI to generate an image based on, mm. you know, uh, its training. And then, of course, more recently, there has been uh, uh, many research and developments. I can... Uh, it, it, so I think there are at least three or four um, key factors that uh, really brought us where we are today. Uh, okay. One is, in terms of generative AI, the first one is uh, these algorithms are still fairly young. I mean, GAN, for example, was 2014, so it's less than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, Transformers, which is a technology which is, uh, that has been invented by Google and that is used in, in ChatGPT, is uh, from 20... Not sure anymore, but it's uh, I would say five years uh, five five years old or something like this. Uh, um, we should look it up afterwards. But it, it's still a very recent technology, so that's one thing. New mm -hmm. algorithms. Second thing um, is the fact that we have now uh, compute sufficient compu computing power, and it sounds like a, a detail, but it's actually super important because you need to train these models, and it takes like. Uh, a lot of computing power and to train chat GPT, GPT-3, um, uh, some um, researchers in the academic world have estimated that on a single CPU, it would take 300 years. So it's just to give an idea of the uh, amount of computing power that you need to train such models. So that's uh, a second aspect is now we have pretty good uh, computing power thanks to right. players such as NVIDIA. And then uh, the, the two other factors are, uh, which are related to computing power is the amount of data which is available to train these models and two, the number of parameters that you can have in these models, which is directly related to the quality of the model and the quality of the output of the content that you are going to generate thanks to these models. It, it is... Um... It's amazing that all of those things that have been slowly building, that they could come together so succinctly over the last 10 years as I've butt up against um, AI, one in our workplace, we're in the data center business, but we use AI and machine learning within our own tools to predict um, performance of our infrastructure, to do analytics, to make recommendations, to adjust you know, we have the data of the whole world here, which is another way to say that we are responsible for a lot of energy and resources, and we need to be uh, good students of that, um, of those resources, so that we're not contributing to the uh, 
environmental challenges that the that that we we as a world are all working through. But anyway, so we use those tools. So I'm familiar with narrow AI, general AI, but um, generative AI was never. I I don't recall ever a discussion about that when you're not in the AI business, when you're not immersed in it, when you're sort of this public that hears this terminology all the time. It appears like it just showed up, but it it hasn't shown up. It's a it, it's been building, as you said. Um, we're in the summer. I thought maybe you'd say the spring, but that makes sense that we're in the summer because it's been going for a while, for a few years now, in this latest iteration. And we have all of these um, disconnected, um, I shouldn't say disconnected systems, but we now have, to your point, I hadn't thought about that before, but the compute power to organize data sets, it's a tremendous amount of data to get it organized, and then to take meaningful action with it. And then it feels like the last part is this elegance with which I can just talk to this thing. And it, um, more often than not, it's not just accurate, it's creative in how it replies. And it fools me into thinking, this thing, <laughs> this thing gets me. Like, this is my spirit animal. No, it's just really good parameters and uh, algorithms that are running on the back end. Um, it's a, it's a, if for anybody who hasn't used it, it is a, entertaining on the one hand, all the way up to mystical on the other. It's a really interesting experience to use these tools. Absolutely. When, um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to say, um, because we started discussing about uh, very specific things, but uh, maybe it could be interesting for your uh, auditors to uh, re-explain a little bit um, the architecture of AI in terms of uh, um, because we speak about AI, but AI is actually a, a, a bucket in which there are various different approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, like decades ago, uh, the main approach, approach was called expert systems. Uh, what has been used uh, more recently over the last um, uh, decade or two decades is uh, machine learning. And then within machine learning, uh, you have deep learning. And actually, when people speak about AI today, uh, most of it is actually deep learning. Okay. Um, and then just to go back to uh, what I was saying before and what you commented on, deep learning has been used extensively uh, in the real world for concrete business applications um, to make sense of the, out of data. And there are three uh, main kind of applications. One is classification. So it's when you want to group certain objects uh, into defined categories. Uh, for example, let's say that you uh, want to, you are running a hotel or a hotel chain and you want to identify the customers which you are likely to churn uh, based on historical data. So mm -hmm. that's uh, the kind of AI that you would use here is so-called classification. Then you have regression. Uh, regression is how to build an equation that is going to describe what you want to describe. Um, and for example, here, just to, to, to continue on the hotel example, mm -hmm. is how do you build an optimal pricing equation based on um, the uh, booking date, uh, when you want to um, arrive at the hotel, when do you want to leave, what is the demand, what is the offer, uh, what week of the day, what is the place, etc. So how do you build an equation that will give you the optimal price that you should have for your hotel? And then the third um, 
main application is clustering. So in this case, is how do you um, how do you automatically segment uh, your clients based on their history or based on their geography, based on their social network activity? Um, so these three things, classification, regression, and clustering, was really how AI has been has been used in the in the past. So it's not about creating something; it's really about making making sense out of a large number of data to bring more performance to business. And then, indeed, more recently, uh, we realized that it was also possible to actually create stuff, and stuff can be text, video, photo, images, etc., mm -hmm. etc. It's, um, <clears throat> I mean, my brain's going so many different places. I have all these questions and I don't even know if I'm going to ask them, but I, I'm imagining using your hotel, um, analogy at some point, somebody's going to walk up to the counter, presuming a human being is still there. I'm going to pretend for the moment that there's still going to be a human being there. And as this person is talking to the customer service agent there, there are going to be tools on their screen that are going to suggest to them th that are going to be looking through cameras at this, is this person disheveled? Have they had a difficulty getting from the airport to the thing? In other words, almost like a counselor in your ear, ear walking, watching and saying, I could tell by their heart rate. I could tell by their appearance. I can tell by the time of day that this is the kind of day they're having. And you might want to approach this person this way or like when you're talking about segmentation, in other words, it's more parameters to say, as I'm having a real-time interaction with somebody, how do I improve their customer experience, help inform this human being to have a real-time uh, customer experience uh, with this person in front of me so that when they leave here, they feel like, man, this person gets me. And, they, and the way they're doing that is they're looking at data sets in the same way that your daughter was asking a question or I was messing around with Dolly the other day and... Um, told it to make some things for me. And I was so surprised when I got to the end of it, it made this beautiful picture and image that I told my wife, I think I, I think I want to get that printed and hang it somewhere. Like I love this, uh, this thing that it made. It, it gets me. It understood all this, this stuff. But I just imagined some point in the future that um, all the tools, all the sensory input things with a back end of a massive database that it's going to be, or a data lake, that it's going to be able to make real-time um, assessments and offer uh, suggestions or ideas to the human beings, or maybe someplace we don't need the human beings. This tool can just, this avatar can just do it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's uh, that's another very active active field of, uh, of research at the moment that has applications in many industries. It's uh, so-called affective computing. So it's mm. exactly what you are describing, and it's... Uh, I know in particular that there is a lot of research in, uh, in the field of uh, luxury and cosmetics, but not only. Uh, it's how uh, not only do you quantify emotions or objectify emotions, but it's also about how do you create specific emotions. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, so this is where we are going, which is uh, exciting, but also uh, freaky. Yeah, it... Um... So today, my Spotify, <clears throat> I just, I had this weird, in America, we have this thing called disc golf. Do you have, are you familiar with disc golf in France? Are you familiar with it? With, disc which, golf. It's like, do you know what a Frisbee is? Plastic yeah, yeah, disc yeah, that yeah, you yeah. throw. Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what it is. Uh, yeah. You throw don't, your kind of Frisbee in some. Uh, yes. Don't go yeah. do it. 
because you'll get addicted. I can already tell with your magician background, you'll get addicted to this thing. You're out in, it's one of the fastest growing non-ball sports in the world. It's huge in Scandinavia. It's really big in America. Yeah, my wife is Norwegian and uh, this is where I played it uh, a few <laughs> yeah. times. Yes, huge, huge. Norwegians in particular, Nor the Norwegians and the Finns. I don't know what's going on in Sweden, but those other two countries, it's huge. But anyway, it's very addictive. So I'm out playing disc golf the other day here in the States, and um, I hear a song nearby. These guys are just playing this beat. I've never heard it before. It's really, really cool. So I pull out my phone. I hit my Shazam app. It hears the song and says, oh, this is a group called Sun Squabby. And um, I think they're a States-based uh, New Orleans or something like that. And it's just kind of like a funky funk instrumental group not a lot of words just music i enjoyed it so much i went to spotify and said hey play me some sun squabby this band i just heard about a few minutes ago it started uh it played it found it for me played these variety of songs and then it started to say to me hey if you like that group the other voodoo dolls like you that listen to that music also listen to these things and so as i'm walking through the woods playing my frisbee uh golf I'm building this playlist and I'm having this experience. And when we were talking about ChatGPT earlier, I'm wondering when I'm going to be able to take a song and say, hey, make a song for me that reminds me of this and just drop it in mm -hmm. and then say, make it faster, slower, darker, lighter, mm -hmm. whatever. And over time, I'm not even going to have to ask it. I'm going to get up in the morning and my yeah. app is going to say, just start playing something. And if I like it, I can comment on it. Or maybe as it sees my body responding, it can adjust the music. Or like it, again, it just feels awesome, but it's also terrifying, like the Pied Piper, you know, as somebody hacks my system and wants me to get into an emotional yeah. uh, rage, you know, I don't even realize it, but it's, it's, uh, it's affecting me. Yeah, I totally agree. I find it ter terrifying. <laughs> As far as I can remember, I've been uh, I've been very much fascinated by uh, technology, and at the same time very concerned uh, by the drawback of technologies. Uh, one of the the first uh, I, I love science fiction, and one of the first dystopian science fiction uh, book I read was A Brave New World by uh, oh. Aldous Huxley. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you've read it. But... <clears throat> I'm familiar with it. I, I haven't read it, but in the same way that I haven't watched every Seinfeld episode, I know a lot of uh, a lot of people have referred to it. So it's uh, it, it's a world. So it speaks about uh, a world in which there is a very stable world. Uh, world there is no war, no people don't fight anymore, etc., etc. So everything seems to be uh, for the best, um, and that works. Uh, thanks to technology to some extent because uh, embryos are uh, selected uh, then people are conditioned uh, from when they are born uh, to you know remain very stable and the other thing is that uh, all day long they keep uh, eating these uh, drugs uh, and you have different colors for these drugs <laughs> depending right. on the, the strength that you want right. And so the, these drugs are called Soma, and it just makes people, you know, super happy all day long, uh, very stable, etc. 
But the thing, so it, it seems very good at first sight because, you know, no war, <clears throat> people are happy, right. etc. But then uh, the consequence is that there is no free will anymore. Uh, everything is very, um, I'm not sure of the English for that, normative. Right. You know? Yeah, controlled, like, normative, it, it, yeah. Yeah, you, you cannot be an outlier. Like right. you, you, if if you have been selected to be an alpha, uh, meaning the top of the society, then you will be an alpha and yeah. you will be happy with it. If you have been selected to be a, an epsilon, which is the lowest grade, uh, then uh, you will be an epsilon your your whole life and you will be happy about it. Right. <laughs> so it's really no space for outliers. And, uh, and yeah, I think it's, uh, so I read that when I was 14 or something, and uh, it's, since then, I've always been very concerned about these, uh, both the positive aspects, but most importantly, with the negative aspects of, uh, of technologies. And with AI, it's really, really uh, impressive and, and disturbing at the same time. It is. It, um, <clears throat> you know, I would love to spend a few minutes sort of on the philosophical, I, in my conversations with, I mean, everybody from nuclear scientists to disc golf experts, um, we had Dr. Avi Loeb, we just published this week, um, former chair of astronomy at Harvard. Uh, he was one of the first <clears throat> main scientists to comment on this phenomenon that came into the solar system in 2017 called Oumuamua. And most of our conversation was around the philosophy, not of this object that came into the solar system and left, but the response of the scientific community when he said, you know what, based upon these reasons, I don't think that's a natural phenomenon. I think it's unnatural, alien or some other. And here's why. Here's my scientific reasons. Uh, comets do this. Asteroids do this. Meteors do this. Satellites do this. Here's their behavior. This isn't behaving like any one of those. And so here's why. I may be wrong. But here's why, in with this evidence and in the uh, astro, you know the the laws of physics that I understand, and many of the his peer group and that the larger community um, wanted to apply norms. Wait a minute, we can't even consider that. We need to be. We can't be curious about this. Is how he would represent it. We can't even be curious about this idea. We need to come way back into these norms, and human beings. As a sure, we have a large portion of our population, or at least even for you and I, there. I'm a very curious person. You are obviously a very curious and imaginative person, but there are parts of your life that you're not investigating. When I was a kid, I used to build my own computers to game and other stuff. Now I just give me that iPhone. I just want it to work. I don't, I don't have time or the energy to mess with it. Where I used to be curious, but there are parts of my life that I am, and I think that human beings were. We're hardwired in our evolutionary cycle, good or bad, to strive to, you know, we're strongest when we move and we resist. And I don't mean conflict like war. I just mean like when we strain against things, when we strain our brain, when we strain ideas, even our philosophical or religious texts will say, sharpen your minds as iron sharpens iron, this image of bring important ideas with other people, don't attack each other, but but against a whetstone kind of sharpen your ideas. And when we remove that, could you imagine if we applied those norms or the ideas of Brave New World to Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs was an agent of chaos. <clears throat> he brought in all of this energy and chaos, and there were well-documented instances of personalities that got caught up in that, and uh, unfortunately. But 
um, when they removed Steve Jobs from Apple and the chaos went away and the energy went away, the creativity and the, the value crashed. And when they brought him back in, but with some, some bureaucracy, no bureaucracy doesn't work, um, they flourished again. And some would argue they're still flourishing. And so as you think about tools, generative AI in particular we're talking about, from a philosophical perspective, how do we, as we're exploring... On the one hand, try to enforce these tools being used for good and human flourishing while at the same time resisting too much control because then it just kind of forces us into a box and we, you know, I don't, no restrictions is, can be equal, is equally damaging as high bureaucracy restrictions. So how do you imagine we, we navigate this with this philosophical mindset? Um, so in terms of uh, philosophical questions, uh, I guess we can uh, ask several of them. One of them that I'm uh, looking into at the moment is, uh, you know, there is a, a well-known uh, issue with uh, AI in general, <coughs> but in particular with generative AI, it's so-called algorithmic biases. So okay. it's uh, sure. the, the, so an, uh, an algorithmic bias uh, is when an AI is going to treat uh, certain people or certain groups of people differently uh, from the others. Uh, and this is completely... Um, due to how the technology works, because these large language models are trained with a very large amount of data and documents, etc. And these documents have been produced by humans. And these documents uh, embed our own biases. Mm. And therefore, they are, uh, these biases are transferred um, to the AI. And uh, I mean, you have heard uh, in the past uh, stories about an AI that had become uh, racistic uh, just in uh, <laughs> by reading too much stuff on Twitter, these kind of things. So one of the key challenges today is how do you build safeguards um, around these AIs so they behave <laughs> right. as uh, correctly. So if we go back to ChatGPT, for example, it realizes on uh, a technology called Bricks uh, called GPT-3 or 4 now. And on top of that, or in addition of that, there is um, the OpenAI uh, moderation API that is in charge of making sure that uh, the, the model is not exposed to let's say, non-desirable uh, inputs, but also to make sure that the output of the model is going to be also, um, uh, is going to behave uh, in, in a proper manner. Mm. But then it raises another question because this moderation is done also by humans. And at all levels, the people who are developing these tools are shaping a certain model with their own worldview. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in what direction is the balance going, going to lean is the question. You know, there are already some people like Elon Musk, uh, who is, by the way, a co-founder of OpenAI, uh, who is, uh, is getting worried that the, the chat GPT is going to become, uh, to become woke. So I, I don't, I don't want to take a, a right. side in this discussion, but uh, the point is, um, there is no simple answer. And the thing is that people or companies developing these models are going to shape these models according to their own 
worldview, and then the rest of the world is going to use this model. And this is going to lead to, as there is a risk, but it will lead to a normalization of uh, uh, thinking or thoughts. You see what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, as you're talking, we had uh, Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, who is head of ethics at Emory University, a major mm -hmm. uh, university here in the States. He was a chief ethicist officer at NASA for a while. And the conversation was similar in what he said. He was in a debate with somebody about longevity. And they were like, look, we need to get consciousness onto silicon and we need to have human beings long. And he said, I, I appreciate, I mean, who doesn't want to live? Like, we don't, nobody wants to die. <laughs> Not even animals in nature want to die. I understand what you're getting at. But just think about this. We don't know what the unintended consequences are if, if, the, if the current people in power... Um, don't leave the scene and make room for new ideas and new thought. For example, if humans live for 200 years, the people that were in charge during the Civil War or the French Revolution or pick, a, pick an event in history, positive or negative, they'd st many of them would still be in power. And so if whatever that version is today, if, if ChatGPT or these generative AIs were in power back in the eight, you know, we had that technology 200 years ago here in the States or 160 years ago saying these people are valuable, these people aren't valuable, this is worth dying for, this isn't worth dying for. How you, we could just see how whole communities and people groups would be exploited. You know, women can't vote. Um, this group can't. Uh, some, I was just learning the other day that um, women gained the right to vote. I forget what country it was, but not until 1981. And that just blew my mind. I was like, that can't possibly be true. It was a major, um, one of the, you know, a, I think it was a NATO country, but in the last, um, yeah, top, yeah. you know, one of the larger 50. Anyway, my point is this, that if you're reiterating these biases and, and spreading this, or we have an enemy, a state enemy of one country that's feeding misinformation in and trying to deliberately um, introduce bias to a people group, you know how do we how do we put regulation and truth, um, you know, truth tellers around the tools to keep us from rushing right into uh, believing something that's false or being or being persuaded to imagine a philosophy that ultimately leads to our destruction? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But what's for sure is that uh, critical thinking uh, is a is a skill that is going to become more and more important. And um, for um, <clears throat> People like us who have uh, the chance to have been uh, educated, uh, it's, I guess it's part of our skill set. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the case of uh, of many. So, you know, it, it will increasingly uh, become difficult to distinguish uh, what is real and what is not real. Uh, thanks to AI in particular, but not only thanks to AI, but in particular because of, of that. And the web has, uh, is already flooded with, uh, you know, deep fakes and uh, fake news and all that. So stuff is going to become fairly complicated. I well, think. you're in the middle of this. How do you, whether it's your staff, it's yourself, it's your kids, how do you, how are you... Um, how are you helping them to think through? So, you know, obviously people that have been, have a wide breadth of education. You're one of those people. If you're doctorate in physics, I believe you, you spent uh, time uh, as a technologist before that. 
obviously a seller of magic goods is uh, pretty amazing. Magic uh, sc- shows. Magic Good. shows. Magic shows. I love it. Uh, performer and entrepreneur. I love it. And so you've got sort of a, a healthy script, uh, skepticism, not cynicism. It seems like, hey, let me evaluate this and check it. And if it is true, let's run with it. And if it's not, but that's not normal. So how do you help the people in your community group either that are learning to learn themselves to critical think or that are critical thinkers to maintain their critical thinking just in your world? How are you helping your organization there at Arthur D. Little or Blue Sky or your kids maintain their critical thinking ability? Yeah. Did you ask chat GPT? uh, No, uh, I'm trained as a, as a researcher. So, I mean, uh, this is, one of the key skills of a researcher is, uh, you know, to rely on facts. Right. Uh, so always checking the sources. And when you have, uh, uh, when you are building a, a scientific theory, uh, you have to uh, confront it to the experiment. And, mm-hmm. you know, so the, you have the scientific method. Uh, and then what we do as consultant at Arthur De Little, and also in particular in my institute, the Blue Shift Institute, is also Blue very much—it uh, very much looks like what we do in research, after all. Uh, not maybe not as deep, but uh, it's all about facts, uh, expertise, etc. At least what we do at Blue Shift is is twofold because uh, one part of our work in the publications that we or the studies that we lead. In, is to look at, for example, when we speak about generative AI, we want to understand what is going on in the field. So what are the technologies, their maturities, the players, the hurdles to overcome before uh, it, you can reach uh, this and that uh, application, etc. So this is this part is really fact-based. Mm-hmm. And then the second uh, thing that we want to achieve uh, with uh, this uh, technology institute is also to try to anticipate uh what the future is going to be uh, n- not so much anticipate actually it's to build what if scenarios you know if right. generative ai um, becomes uh, allows us to do this and that in 10 years what does it mean for business what does it mean for society etc so uh for this particular part of the work uh of course we we start from the facts and the expertise etc but we need to tap into other uh, perspectives can be uh, philosophy, anthropology. Uh, we work with uh, science fiction authors also, uh, with artists, because to imagine what the future could be, you need to think differently. Mm. And we are not saying that the future is going to be like that because mm-hmm. we don't know. Right. But we want to get ready if it becomes like this or like that. So right. that's, let's say, uh, my answer for the professional sphere and for the personal sphere, I think both uh, my wife and I are pretty, uh, we are both scientists originally. And so our daughters are, you know, in this uh, environment of, you know, check the facts. Right. Uh, when you ask something to Google, Google used to be a search engine, but it's it's less and less of a search engine because when you ask a question in the search bar, very often now at the top, before actually getting to the documents, you know, you have an answer. Right. And so, of course, the answer is sourced generally, but it gives you a, a, a pre, uh, uh, it, 
like it facilitates your life because it will give directly the answer. You don't need to read the whole article. You will get, you know, if you want to know the age of, I don't know who, you will get directly the age. And I find that a little bit frisky because it makes, it, it tends to make people a little bit more lazy into reading, understanding uh, all the details, mm-hmm. gives the fast answers, but does not give incentive to check the census. So right. we are trying to raise our kids to always question these, uh, these things. Yeah. In fact, and it will be even worse with uh, tools such as uh, GPT. It goes back to um, that idea of striving. We're meant to strive. And if we don't, um, I, we have a um, gentleman coming on from Cambridge here in a few weeks, and his expertise is AI and law. And um, in our brief conversations, as we prepared for our conversation, he, uh, he makes this point about control and how discovery being done by AI is impacting negatively mm-hmm. the skill of attorneys and paralegals because it's taking the skill away. They're not less intelligent, but they don't, they don't, there's something about the brain building neural, you know, building networks and striving and working and getting the answer and then saving the answer. And it, there's a value and a way that our brains have evolved over the however millions of years they've evolved. And when we've just literally stopped doing that, it um, we're not sure what all of those consequences are. But before you react to that, I started laughing. I also uh, I wish my wife and I were scientists like you and your wife trained because I feel sorry for anybody who wants to date your daughters because they're going to fact check everything they say. And maybe not or gonna... maybe not, you know, because we want to shape our kids, but they <laughs> might have their own views. Uh, so. Maybe. Uh, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, as you've, you talk about these two different, the fact side, the really hardcore, tangible engineering part of Blue Shift. I, I don't know why I called it Blue Sky earlier. I have Blue Shift written down here. I apologize. Blue Shift. And you've got that and you're validating and you're measuring and you're kind of doing this thing. And then over here, you've got more of the philosophical. I love that idea of um, having uh, science fiction writers whose imagination just run wild. And, um, but yet they still try to base it in sort of some connection to uh, tech or laws of physics or whatever. Have in, in that part of your world, have you all ever there said, been really excited about a possible outcome or terrified of a possible outcome? Ooh, shut, shut. In other words, it reminds me of those science fiction stories where the person's going down the hallway and they're opening doors. And they're like, wow, that looks amazing. Wow, that looks amazing. They open the door, there's a dragon roaring and fire and they shut that door and say, oop, don't go through that door. As you guys have explored that over um, in your institute now, do you ever run into those where you're like, man, this is really cool. Let's keep let's keep investigating this or in other doors, oh, we don't want to go down that. I personally like dark scenarios uh, like it, because I really see that as a way to trigger uh, thinking and provoke, uh, provoke thinking. So yeah, I mm. think it's always interesting to look at the darkest scenarios possible. And by the way, I created um, a tech event uh, some years ago that, that is called Dystopia, exactly mm. for that, because most uh, tech events uh, are in let's say happy talk mode like we right. are going to present technologies on their brightest side right while in reality there is also a dark side and i think it's important when you develop and use technologies to consider both sides and make sure that uh, at the end of the day you are going to develop and use these technologies for humanly 
desirable uh, future, let's say. Yeah. Well, Dr. Wolpe even said um, he's a, he is a f- huge fan of AI, and he said, but one of the things we need to ask ourselves is when we, be given, when we begin giving tools um, or machines the ability to, to act with human agency, for example, in the battlefield, and to take a human life in certain circumstances. On the one hand, the benefit of an AI in a battlefield situation is, um, of course, he prefaced it by saying, hopefully we'll never have a battlefield. This was before what's going on in Eastern Europe. So um, maybe maybe we'll always have to deal with uh, uh, things like that. That seems to be human nature. But in any event, when we put the machine in the battlefield, um, on the one hand, it's not afraid. So if somebody comes around the corner and the, um, the machine doesn't mistake the baby for a, a bomb and it doesn't hurt anybody. It just, it's just a machine. It's just evaluating um, the situation. On the other hand, we're giving it control in that circumstance to take human life if certain parameters, algorithms are met or whatever. And, and, or at least that's the question that... Um, militaries are wrestling with as they develop technology in their world. He said, we should think long and hard about this, um, enabling these machines um, or whatever, whether they're doing autonomous driving. Like, in other words, his point is there's unintended consequences. We need to work through the ethical challenges of these. Usually it's not as simple as don't lie, don't steal, that's bad. It is more uh, a a choice among dark outcomes, which is the less dark, and how do we work through that? And in the many times in the past, we didn't have tools that had this kind of power. And it's, I love it. I, I love the tools, but I, I want to be um, wise in the application and informing my communities misuse. These are the consequences that it can have. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you've read this book uh, called Life 3.0 by Professor Max Tegmark from the MIT. No. Uh, I really recommend that you, you read it. It's, it's, it's really good. And um, it came out, when was it? I think 2017 or something like this. Okay. And so this, this, this uh, MIT professor started as a, um, um, doing a theoretical physics, but now he's, he's also moved to artificial intelligence. And this, this book is quite good because he's looking at the existential risks related to AI and mm-hmm. how even if you try to conceal AI, you know, make it not connected to the internet so it does not escape and how uh, from the start you try, there is a big challenge in AI is how do, do you align the interest of humanity with the objective that you give to the AI. Mm. And so he's discussing all these points, uh, building on um, building on uh, also a, a, a book by, by uh, the Swedish philosopher Nick Bostrom. And anyway, Life 3.0 okay. is a book that I would recommend. It's really, really good. I'm curious to read it. My wife um, is half Japanese and half Irish, and she every couple years she comes to me and says, we should plant bamboo. No, no, we should not plant bamboo, never. Why is that? As you were talking about this book and sort of these parameters that this author is wrestling with, I don't know if you have any experience with bamboo, but once you plant bamboo, bamboo does everything it can to ex- escape its boundaries and what 
once it does, it is almost impossible short of digging up all the dirt within a huge swath, grinding it up and putting down new dirt to prevent it from growing. It just okay. is so hard to maintain and to manage. <laughs> That's you a nice analogy. Yeah. And, a nice and analogy it, with the AI alignment uh, challenge. It, and, it's, and the thing is, is it is in its nature, which allows it to thrive on these Pacific islands and in all these places in these harsh environments. But, but when you put it in an environment that's not harsh, it, it's constantly, it's almost sentient looking for how do I escape my boundaries? And if you are not vigilant for a second, it's out. And once it's out, God help you if you don't catch it quick because it, it it'll just spread and spread and spread. And that's the, the concern with me with these two. I love them. I love the tools. I love the benefit they can bring. Um, I cannot wait. It allows people like me that are creative with a little C to get more creative, to get more imaginative, because I don't have to be a musician, good or bad, whatever the implications are of that, or an artist. I can, I can bring my imagination and the tools can help me create things. But if they get out of their box in an inappropriate way, as we've talked, mm. it could be very consequential. Yep. Do you ever have things come into your um, uh, into Blue Shift that you say, hmm, we're not interested in Either it's too dark or it's not um, it's not impactful enough. How do you, I guess maybe another way to ask a question is how do you determine what you're going to investigate and what you're not going to investigate? Yeah. So the, the mission of the this institute that I'm leading. So I'm based mm -hmm. in Paris, but I'm part of the global global team at Arthur Delittle, and the institute is therefore part of the global team. And the mission that we've we've defined is to explore the impact of technologies on business, society, and humans. Mm -hmm. So we are interested in how these technologies are not only going to impact business, but also how they could impact in particular negatively um, society and humans. Mm -hmm. And we are mostly interested in technologies which fit three criteria. Uh, the first one is low maturity. So we are looking at technologies which are not, not yet completely mature because otherwise it's uh, not so interesting. Right. Uh, this is one thing. Second criteria is a question of pace. We are looking at technologies that develop rapidly. And in particular, it may mean exponential technologies. Uh, um, does not mean necessarily digital technologies, uh, just technologies whose features or properties are progressing following an ex exponential growth rather than a uh, linear growth. And the reason why we are focusing on these kind of technologies is because it's very difficult to predict what is going to happen because you know when something develops over a linear scale you know you can estimate basically what it will look like in five years right. while when you are on an, on an exponential scale at the very beginning it's very small so you think okay or you don't really care about it but then at some point the exponential really kicks in and it's when you get uh, massive disruptions and if you make a little mistake on when the exponential kicks in, you may make a big mistake in terms of when it's going to happen and and how strong it's going to be. So anyway, this is why we are focusing on these ones, because it's the most difficult. Mm. It's a second aspect base. And then the, the third criteria is a criteria of impact. Uh, how deeply this technology is going to impact business and society. It can be, when we speak about business, the impact can be in terms of depth, 
how deeply a certain industry is going to be transformed. And it can be also in terms of width. In, in this case, it's how many industries or how many sectors are going to be impacted by uh, this technology. So it's, these are really the three main criteria that we are looking at. There is a fourth one, but that is almost a consequence of the previous ones, which is a notion of uh, convergence. Very often we are focusing on technologies which are at the convergence of several fields. And for example, last year we looked at uh, metaverse, we looked at quantum computing. We are currently digging into generative AI, synthetic biology. Mm. Um, and yeah. Synthetic biology. I, we need to have you on to talk about that at some point. We had a professor out of uh, Georgia Tech. He leads the research group of creating synthetic DNA and storing electronic data in it. And it is a fascinating emerging field um, because the power to store, you know, we have all this data and the, the and this would be more long-term storage data at this point. So it's not uh, data that you would uh, read or write from regularly, but you could store so much historical data in that synthetic DNA strand and retrieve it accurately. It's... Um, it's mind. It's almost like magic. Back to Arthur C. Clarke. In fact, when I when you when you read that, uh, I'm imagining. Could you could you imagine taking your smartphone to Galileo or something and saying? I mean, they would have no idea of. Uh, you know, it would look like magic. It would it would truly look like or a Bluetooth speaker or something. It just it would be much less augmented reality glasses. Um, it just wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't know how to process it. I don't know if they'd be excited or burn you at the stake as a heretic. Actually, those guys would probably be excited. But um, as, as these things come across, whether it's the synthetic or the generative AI, how do you know? Do you do you study them for a period of time? In other words, you got a time amount that you de uh, designate to it, or do you do it until you feel like you've you've exhausted the short term goals in those, and then you move on to the next idea? How does it that you determine, you and your institution, what we're going to uh, really spend our time, how much time we're going to spend on any particular area? Yeah, yeah it's, I would say it's mostly project-based because, I mean, these topics are almost not infinite literally, but they right. are pretty broad. So, you, uh, I mean, we could spend our whole life uh, looking into what is going on in the field. Right. So we give ourselves uh, a number of months to investigate, make our research and analysis and produce uh, our conclusions. Yeah. But then, uh, because it's also moving fields, we update uh, mm. our research regularly, mm. depending on you know if there are new findings or new discoveries or this kind of things. Mm. And also to make sure that we are looking into the right technologies, we have a, an external scientific committee to just help us, you know, focus on the sweet spots, good spots, make sure mm -hmm. that we don't miss anything. Yeah. Can we, can we give ideas to that community to give you direction? Because I think teleporters would be really good, just like they have in Star Trek, where you can just step into it and appear. Like if I wanted to come to a conference in Paris, I don't have to go through jet lag. I can just step in the teleporter. I could be there. It would be wonderful if somebody would investigate that and make that happen. I think. Yeah, I, think I think it's 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 beyond our timeline. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm not convinced that it's something that would happen in the next ten years or tw even twenty years. I think there is still. A, a Come on, you're move. a you're a purveyor of magic shows. 
I need work work on the delivery. I think you can make I, I, I that happen. Can, yeah, okay. I can definitely <laughs> design a trick that would make you think that it actually works, <laughs> but there would be a trick. Oh man. Yeah, it would be a trick. It'd be it'd be a pretty awesome trick. Well, let me, I I do tend to be an optimist. What what is it? Um, oh, by the way, yeah. I, uh, uh, before yeah. we switch to the other yeah. topic, I have a question for you. Yeah. Because you know teleportation. Mm-hmm. If you want to teleport yourself almost instantly, you need to. You can't transfer the matter itself. You need to transfer information. Mm. Okay, through right. for example electromagnetic uh, waves, light. Yeah. So it's a signal that you send. It's data. It's information. It's not matter. Right. Right. So it means that at the start, <clears throat> if let's say that uh, you are in the US and you want to come over to Paris, at the start, we need to scan you. You need to identify every single molecule, its position, its speed, etc., etc. And then we send over the data on the other side. And then with raw material, we rebuild you with molecules, et cetera, on the other side. Right. But remember that we have sent is just the information and we have built a new self on the other side. But what is going to happen with the self at the start point? You need to do something with, yeah. with it. So the only solution is to, unless you want to have two, two representations of yourself, yeah. uh, you need to kill one of them. So it means that each time you teleport, you need to basically commit suicide. Well, we should have started with this conversation. Um, I would just say that to me, if we're sitting around with our science fiction writers, I'm as I'm read, the first thing that happens is my digital twin is put into you know some sort of digital a digital twin is made of of who I am, who I am is the thing between my ears. It is not this uh, now closer to 60 than 50-year-old ex-airborne, you know, uh, dude. But it deconstructs, so it, it, the, um, the uh, conscious or subconscious or whatever, the things of me that if you could take them out of this person and put it into another animated object, um, as every good science fiction does, and then whatever's left of me would just dematerialize and go into the peptide soup, amino acid soup over here. And to your point earlier, just like 3D printing, I'm reversed. You know, it's re- it's deconstructed, and then over there, to your you know what you said about the molecules. Here's the here's the uh, uh, here's the um, what am I trying to say? The uh, map. Here's the digital footprint of this person. Rebuild it and then in- inject in their consciousness. And I, I know that's a, it's kind of like speaking into chat GPT. It seems like it's easy because you just ask it a question or some other things. What you don't see is the millions of um, processing um, computational cycles happening on the back end and the storage array and all that. It's just it's this simple thing. And so you push the button, the light comes over me. My consciousness or who I am is somehow transported up into silicone. Okay, but so does it mean that you believe that uh, consciousness is something which is in addition to your body? Oh. Yes. Okay, because I, I'm no, I'm I am a materialist, so I think that conscious consciousness is emerging from our physical body. Mm. It's a consequence of the physics and the chemistry that is going on. It's so. But let me ask you this then. But in, Could, in any case, in any yeah. case, you would need, um, if you want to transfer the consciousness on the other side, 
you would need to identify what it is if you want to scan it and send it over. Right. So I think it goes back to the same same point. It means that the, the, the entity that is remaining on the starting point has to be killed. Right. I think. Otherwise Possibly. You get or you go through the little death. I mean, all science fiction books, they you know, it's fun how they approach this. There was a show, um, I cannot remember the name of it. It was really interesting where your consciousness was, you as a human were inserted into a variety of different bodies. It was on Prime or something for a few years. The AI ran the hotels. It was this really interesting um, story, and you could move between people. Not an old, Not a new story. I don't know. It'd be interesting. Or worst case scenario, if they just have to transfer the eight pounds of your brain, you know, the the disassemble and reassemble it, and all the chemical and all you know everything's frozen in place, and then they transfer it to the new place. I don't know. I don't know how they would do it. I just and, want and them the, to do it. The other thing is, I I don't believe that we can like consciousness very much depends on your sensory system i mean sure. you have a feeling of being you because you can see through your eyes you can hear you have a number of sensors and mm -hmm. these sensors are interpreted by the brain much in the same way that uh, right and no, i'm right. not going to make a parallel to ai or otherwise it's going to be too <laughs> slippery but anyway you have sensors and then the brain is trying to make sense out of this what is going on through these uh, senses right so, and the sum of all of that is you, yeah. at least is what you imagine you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to solve the um, the equation. I'm just excited that they could solve it. That the me that's here when I show up, there there have been a number of you know a kind of philosophical discussions around this. If if you could do that, if you could de deconstruct one in and materialize someplace else, did you lose any of you? Any, in other words, you get thinner is kind of this idea. The more and more that happens, the more materially you change. If that had never happened, those chemicals hadn't been disassembled and reassembled. It's like freezing and thawing food, setting aside bacteria. But, you know, when you, you got the original creation, and as you freeze it and thaw it and freeze it and thaw it, the molecular structure uh, okay, is impacted. So I have a little theory on that. Yeah, let's hear I, I have it. Not try to validate it or not, but you know, I said you need to scan the position of every single molecule. But not uh -huh. only you need the position, you need the speed, which is the first derivative. Right. But why would you need only the speed? Maybe you also need the acceleration of every single of them, which is a second derivative. And maybe actually you need all the derivatives of the position. I don't know if it makes sense. Yeah. So if you really want to have a strict replica of anything, including you, you need an infinite number of derivatives and that we can't achieve because we cannot achieve infinity. So it means that each time we transfer, if one day it's possible, we lose indeed something. Yeah. Or, or we say it's impossible because it's infinity until we figure out how to do something so quickly it mimics infinity it's not infinity yeah, okay. we yeah, bend okay. it so it will it will mimic right but it will not be infinity so each time you lose something yeah and by the way if uh, you manage to transfer on the other side let's say that you don't get rid of immediately from the original mm -hmm. the one that has moved on the other side will have a sense of continuity okay it works i am on the other side i am me right, right. And the one that stays 
if you say, okay, it has worked, you are already on the other side. But this one who is here, it doesn't, definitely does not want to die, you know? <laughs> anyway, let's, maybe we should. Uh... Yeah, well, conversation for another day. But it, it, it's, um, I don't know, I love those things. So let, let's, we just got a few minutes left. Let me ask you this, as, you're, as you guys are moving through generative AI, before you move on to the next thing, um, do you, are you coming out of this optimistic like this is overall this is going to be beneficial or are you still unsure and i don't i'm not referring to chat gpt specifically i just mean this world of generative ai um and and not just like what i i can't help because of my personal experience i think of it in a western american english like that's how my brain sorts everything, my philosophical, my faith, my science, my whatever, is shaped very much my biases by a particular perspective. You, with your perspective, as you've not only as a researcher, but as a, um, a scientist, a human being, a father, um, a curious person who looks at the dark um, while also uh, uh, validating the light, what is your sense right now? Is it too early to tell, or do you do you feel like overall these are going to more benefit us than interfere or harm us? If you look at the past, at the history of uh, humanity and history of technologies, there was always a positive and negative side of technologies. Mm -hmm. Until now, we have been quite lucky because we have not made any discoveries which are both which both present an existential risks and are easy to make. Mm -hmm. If you take uh, uh, fission, for example, the atom fission mm -hmm. uh, or fusion, actually, to some extent, mm -hmm. these are technologies which, I mean, it's fairly easy to break an atom and to create a lot of amount of energy. And this presents an existential risk because if you have too many nukes uh, exploding at the same time, then you know right. what's going to happen. Luckily for us, it's pretty difficult to make. Like mm -hmm. it's not someone in his garage who is going to make a nuclear nuke. Right. I mean, some countries can make it. Right. So this is already a serious risk, right. but right. not everyone in his garage. Right. However, uh, there could be a point in time where we make a scientific discovery which is both, which has both existential risks and at the same time is relatively easy to make, even in a garage. So I don't know if it's AI, mm -hmm. uh, but there is a probability. Uh, 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 and actually, I, I think it's a very high probability that in the future at some point, maybe in five years, maybe in 50 years, maybe in a thousand years, I don't know, mm -hmm. that we will discover a technology which is both harmful for humanity and easy to make. Mm. So I'm worried about that. Yeah. Somebody told me, they said, don't worry about AI specifically in their mind. They feel like it'll be a biological issue in the same way that a musician can now have a home studio. Um, in the past, you had to go to the studio and you had to get a group of people together and now the technology exists that you can build a master album very mm -hmm. easily, very inexpensively at home um, with a lot of support. And he said, no, probably not dissimilar. 
we're going to have that same risk with a biological issue long mm-hmm. before we have something that's going to require large compute and be able to distribute it. So uh, I don't talk to anybody about biology anymore. I don't want to be scared that much. But it's uh, <laughs> I just think that it's, you know, we need to, as we move through these things, human beings are going to explore these things. That's what we do. And um, uh, yeah, we just hopefully we can manage uh, without uh, destroying ourselves to to yeah. move through these things and put the parameters around them to keep it healthy. But uh, yeah. it's a but journey. Maybe yeah. To conclude, maybe on AI, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it, there are any existential risks. Um, I think there could be, and there are risks and limits that we have to be careful careful with. Uh, what is for sure is that generative AI has, was really at a tipping point last year and this year. Um, and I think what's going to happen in 2023 and beyond is first, we will see a, a very strong increase of the quality of these generative AIs, whether it's to generate text, uh, images, etc. cetera. Uh, and why are we going to see that? Because the number of parameters is increasing by a, an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude. So each time a new version of these uh, models are released, which is every year or every two years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it follows an exponential law, which is actually faster than the more uh, than the more law. Mm. Um, the amount of data that is used is also increasing and the computing power is also increasing. So quality of this generative AI is going to increase. To some extent, and there might be a limit because, as I said, the number of parameters is currently growing fast, faster than the uh, Moore law. So it means that at some point, the the Moore law, which is a computing power, is mm-hmm. going to be a limit. Mm-hmm. But maybe quantum computing will also arrive, and in which case, quality will keep increasing to to the sky. Anyway. Right. So quality is going to increase. Then adoption, as we we saw with ChatGPT, uh, has skyrocketed, mm-hmm. rocketed, mm-hmm. and there will be a broad adoption both in terms uh, for the end users, but also for people who are developing applications because you know you have all these APIs so anyone any company can build applications on top of these models so application is going to be massive in 2023 mm. which has a consequence is that many new usages are going to appear uh, in the coming months or weeks even mm. and yeah so it's it, uh, it was 2022 and 2023 are really a tipping tipping point, I think. So huge advantages, also huge risks. And to mitigate the risks, one part of the solution is the fourth thing that is fourth thing that is going to happen in 2023. I think is regulation, mm. and we can see that some organizations have already taken measures, like some universities and schools have, for example, banned ChatGPT, which mm-hmm. I think is a mistake mm-hmm. uh, because there is no way to enforce that anyway, and. I don't believe that AI is going to replace humans anytime soon, but uh, what's for sure is that humans using AI in a clever way are going to replace humans who don't. Right. So we should teach uh, our kids, students, how to use properly this tool with a critical thinking mindset. 
um, closing that. And I was saying also in terms of regulation, we can see that also some countries have uh, started to take measures. Uh, China uh, has uh, enforced its uh, deep uh, synthesis law since January 10th, mm -hmm. and it makes it mandatory for people or organizations using AI generated content to disclose it, to disclose mm. the fact that it was AI uh, generated. Right. So I think we will see these four things, quality, adoption, usage, and regulation in uh, the coming month. It is, it's a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating uh, time. And I, I would agree with you. We just had Dr. Kendall Hartley from UNLV on his expertise and researches in uh, the impact of technology on learning. And he's dismayed at the initial reaction of learning institutions trying to ban these things. He said, it's just not, it's not sustainable. It's not going to work. And so we need to get into areas of self-regulation. And there are a number of areas to approach that, in, that um, these things augment the learning experience, kind of like your daughter augmented her experience instead of banning them. Um, Cause it's not going to work. So why, yeah. why do something that's futile? Yeah. But the thing is that it means that we also have to rethink the role of uh, the professor. And this is difficult, of course. Yeah. Probably not just the professor. We're going to have to rethink the oh, role the of the whole education of... system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but just imagine he gave one great example. He said, I have a student that did not get raised, that didn't grow up in a really sophisticated learning environment, but is really, really smart. And sometimes, just like your daughter, Help me to understand what's being asked here. I know how to answer. I'm not always sure I understand the question. And, they, and they've and they used this tool to help them sort of get a line and like, oh, okay, you're asking me this? Got it. Here's how I can answer it. And they've also used the tool then to write their answer. Not to make it. They know the answer, but they are not great at um, communication. And so this thing helps them. And they, they say, look, this was written by this tool, but it's my original thought. And you can assess me in the classroom as to my scope of knowledge. And he said, in those circumstances, it's worked wonderfully. So... I think it's uh, it's an interesting tool. It's an interesting topic. If people want to learn more about Blue Shift, Arthur D. Little, you've got a great TED Talk out there. How do they connect with you and learn more? I mean, we can go on the uh, Arthur D. Little website. Uh, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer these questions. Uh, I was going to say offline, not, not offline, but online, uh, for example, through LinkedIn. Okay. Perfect. Well, um, Albert, thank you for coming on. I, I really thank appreciate you, so much you making the the, uh, my great pleasure. I cannot wait till our next conversation. And uh, um, thanks for coming on. And uh, if you guys have enjoyed this conversation, please like it. And if you loved it, please subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care.